you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket, through a window, in the wall, and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dave. And good morning, everyone. Awesome to see you here in the flesh. And uh, you won't know it, but we are joined by some very special friends in Brisbane this morning. Um, Welcome to City on Hill, Brisbane. Uh, Poor old Mike uh, was sick, so uh, they are joining us this morning digitally. And I've got to say, our hearts go out to you in Brisbane, like here in Bami, Geelong. It's going to be a wonderful top of 13 today. Saw you guys had 27. We we just feel for you. Uh, (laughs) But great to see you guys and great to see all of you. This this is a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Let's, Let's pray that we are really ready to receive what God has for us by His Spirit this morning. So let's do that. Oh, what an incredible passage of Scripture you have given us this morning, Lord. Words from your mouth, through your Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit for the context in which they were given, but also for us today in our situation, whatever our world is. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we look at them together, that you would be speaking to us, that we'd be listening, and Lord, that we would leave this morning changed. 
We ask you to do it, Lord Jesus. Be here with us by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, question this morning. What is the best version of you? What is the version of you that you would love to portray to the world around you, that you would love to be living your best life every moment? What is the best version of you? Now, for most of you, that's a bit of an irrelevant question because I could find that out. You know how I'd find that out? I'd go to your, your Facebook page, I'd go to your social media profile because you would be curating, because it's like a museum, isn't it? Like a, you, you curate the very best pictures and versions of you and you shine the spotlight on them on social media. We all do it. So what's the best version of you? It's you having your most amazing meal, uh, you on your incredible adventure with your family, uh, you, I don't know, fighting for your cause. It's you doing you, and that's the you that you want everyone to see. That's probably the best version of you, isn't it? That's the version you want everyone to see. Everyone's got their self-deprecating jokes about themselves, but really, what you are projecting on that, on that social media stream is who you want others to see you as being and who you want to be. And it's nearly always a version of strength, isn't it? Of competence and confidence. It's, it's a version of this is me and I'm strong. Uh, you could ask the same question about um, churches. You know, what's the vision of our church that you want to project? Well, quite literally, I can tell you the vision of our church I want to project is a projector that works. You come to church and you go like, these guys have got it all together. Look at this. It's humming. It's a smooth, seamless production. It's just so impressive and strong. And we've deliberately factored this in this morning to show that that's not the most important thing. If you're in Brisbane, uh, we've had problems. All right. Um, what's the best version of me personally in my ministry? Uh, what's the best version of you in your ministry? We all have ministry. Well, my version of me and my ministry that's the best one is the one where I am so strong and, and good at everything. The, the most incisive pastoral help, stunning sermons that are, are riveting, you know, like a few uh, miracles and wonders, you know, afterwards. And then, and then maybe a little bit of a, you know, maybe a face on a Christian magazine, you know, th that would be good. And what's wrong with it, right? Talking about Jesus, putting Jesus forward and a little bit of, you know, me on that wouldn't, wouldn't hurt either. Would easy to think that way, isn't it? What's the best version of you? What's the one you want? To see. Now, it's completely normal that we think of a version of strength, but it's also completely wrong spiritually. The best version of you is not the strong you. It's not the you with your power and your achievements and all of your carefully curated image. That's not the best version of you. And this morning, we come to what many uh, people who study this letter of 2 Corinthians say, it's the summit. It's, it's the top, the culminating point of the entire letter. Everything else has been leading towards this mountain peak. And here on this mountain peak, we're going to see something that we crucially need to understand about what the best version of us really is. But as we get to that moment, there's a few things we're going to look at first. Some, some of it is the context, because there's some really important context of this uh, chapter. But also, um, there's a couple of red herrings, and we'll look at those red herrings too. They're important red herrings, but they are red herrings. So we're going to look at some context, some red herrings, and then we're going to really focus in on what we need to know, what the summit of this letter is taking us to. 
So, you ready? Firstly, some context. Uh, You would be aware, if you've been joining us through the series, that this is a really tough time for Paul. This church that he's planted in Corinth, the the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church is strained at the very best. And and Paul, in this letter, his heart is hurting. And the immediate context of that is that these super apostles, these amazing teachers who are, are so strong and powerful and gifted, they've come from Israel, they've come from Judea, Jerusalem, they've come and the contrast with Paul has been really hard for the church. Many of them are being led towards these new apostles. And as they um, undermine Paul's ministry or the credibility of his ministry, he, Paul's had to boast. He, he's trying to say, I, don't, I shouldn't be doing this, but these guys have, have drawn it out of me. You Corinthian church have drawn it out of me. And in, in chapter 11, uh, the preceding chapter to chapter 12 we're looking at today, um, Paul's had to confront them on one thing, on their Jewish pedigree. These guys are saying, you know, we're, we're Hebrews of Hebrews. We're coming from Israel. We've got a, we've got a special anointing. And Paul, you, you might know, Paul says in chapter 11, he says, yeah, my, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he gives a bit of his own Jewish pedigree. And he says, look, this is really not that important, but I've got to do it because you guys are getting focused on the wrong things. But then in chapter 11, 23, he, he transitions and he starts boasting about something that you and I, I don't think would boast about. He speaks about his experience and um, I read it again this week as we look at the context and I've read it many times before where Paul in that, that uh, sort of, if you've got your Bible from 11.23, there's a, there's a paragraph where he speaks about his ministry experience and I've read it many times. But these last couple of weeks, I, I lingered over it and it is shocking. If you actually linger on the words that Paul speaks, I can't even comprehend what he's talking about. So, for example, 11.24, he says this. Five times I was beaten by the Jews with the lashes, 40 minus one. So he says, five times I got 39 lashes. I think, oh yeah, 39 lashes. You know, what's a big deal? Actually, for the first time, I understood what that was. Um, what, it, what actually happened was you would be brought up the front, so it would be like a public meeting of the Jewish synagogue, and let's say we get Dom, we go, Dom, you're going to come up, and you've been church disciplined, Dom, get your shirt off, and then you, would, then you would lash Dom to a post in the synagogue, and then the synagogue ruler, had to, it was defined it had to be a man with a strong arm, would then give him 39 lashes on the back, with the, it had to be the full strength. So imagine that, you, you, you show up for church, and, and poor old Dom is, is getting lashed, you know, or, you know, Picture it. And um, the law, so severe was that, it, there was provision that if, if you lost control of your bowels uh, during this, if you accidentally defecated, that, that there was provisions under the law. If you passed out, there was provisions under the law. If you died, there was provision. And Paul says, five times. <laughs> five times that happened. And imagine one time. I reckon if I had that one time, I would be seeing a counsel with PTSD about the public shame, the physical brutality of the whole thing. Five times. But that's not all. Then he goes on and says, three times the Romans did it. And the Romans had a different method. They, they bound together sticks, um, sticks of wood. And they, it says, when it says the rod, they were called the fasces. The fascism comes from that. They were bound together. And then they, the, the prisoner was lashed with that. It could expose bone. 
And Paul says, I've had it five times from the Jews, three times from the Romans. He could have said like, you want to see something? Ripped off his shirt, turned around his back and one mass of scars. And then he goes on to say, oh, yeah, and then there was shipwrecks, there was, there was hunger, there was thirst, there was danger from robbers, there was all these kinds of things. He, he's talking about, he says, you, you want to know what I got to boast about? This Here it is. I've suffered for Jesus. I've suffered. But then in chapter 12, which we're focusing on today, the context we just looked at, then he changes tack and he says this. And this is, I don't know if you heard when Dave read it or if you've ever wrestled with this. I know I have. He, he changes tack and he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And when you read that, do you ask, who is he talking about? Like we're talking about this whole context and then suddenly Paul goes, oh yeah, and I know this guy who 14 years ago went up into the third heaven. Now, we don't know all the details of what it meant to go up into the third heaven. And Paul's saying, I don't know if it was physical or if it was a vision, but essentially he has been, we sung that beautiful song to begin with, holy, 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 that, that revelation song. So this person is taken from the mundane existence that, that you and I experience here, now the mundane existence, he is caught up and he's taken into the presence of that, what we sung about here in Geelong. We, we sung about that, that incredible vision of God. He is there. He's, he's seeing the, the, the souls of the redeemed waiting for their final consummation, their new heavenly bodies. He is there with the Lamb, with God Almighty on the throne. He's, he's welcomed into that and then he hears things which no human ear can hear. And you would think, what an amazing book title that will be. You know, My Experience of the Third Heaven by Paul the Apostle. That's going to sell out in no time, isn't it? <laughs> but who is this man he's talking about? Well, it might help to talk about, I've been talking about this man quite a lot the last couple of weeks, Eric. <laughs> so Eric uh, was a wonderful saint here in Geelong who, who died uh, suddenly a couple of weeks ago. A wonderful man of God. And, uh, and we had this experience earlier in the year, actually it was late last year, with Eric. And um, you might remember that at that time, our church car park here in Geelong was getting some substantial potholes. You know, you could, ha you could get a ladder and ropes to climb into some of those babies. And um, at one, we were in the office one day and Eric came in and he said this. He said, um, uh, I have a friend who's getting very concerned about the state of those potholes. And I said, well, that's great, Eric, but we've had a quote to try and get them fixed and it's $6,000 and we don't have $6,000 to spend on fixing the potholes right now. And he went away and he came back and he said, my friend has decided that he will contribute the $6,000 to fix the car park. And I said, that's great, Eric, your friend is very generous. Um, are you sure? Would your friend like a receipt? And he said, yes, my friend would like a receipt. And, and both everybody in the office knew who the friend was, right? It was Eric. Like, there was no doubt it was Eric. But he was, he was going through this kind of, you know, he was, he was playing this game, in a sense, to distance himself from the fact that he was being extraordinarily generous. In some ways, Paul is doing a similar thing. It's Paul, right? If you wondered who is this guy, it's Paul. There's zero doubt about it. 
But Paul is saying he's putting some distance between himself and this incredible experience that he himself experienced. But what strikes me in this as we, as we look at the context is, is that Paul's not writing a book, right? He, he's not, um, he only mentions the vision to show what came from the vision and it wasn't book royalties. What came from the vision is this in verse 7. So he's, he described this amazing thing and then he says, verse 7, this is what happened. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So that's the context to that verse that we now focus in on. The context is Paul's boastings of his suffering, the experience, the incredible experience he had, and now we get to the crux of it. But first, some red herrings, right? They're important, but they're red herrings. Number one, what was that thorn? You ever wondered that? What was the thorn in the flesh? Well, I can tell you that there have been, been forests, rainforests cut down by theologians trying to explore this point. Um, there's so much ink is spilled and there are so many suggestions. It, it's, in, it's wonderfully interesting to read some of them. Um, here, here's a few of them you may have heard. Very common one is that it was a failing eyesight, that Paul was, you know, needed glasses but didn't have glasses and so for him it was a thorn in the flesh. He constantly, you know, sort of peering at things, couldn't read, could have been. Um, other people say it's some kind of palsy or this is a common one, hemorrhoids, uh, any other number of painful physical conditions and embarrassing conditions that the human body is subject to, pretty much any one of them, someone said, yeah, that's definitely what Paul had. Um, other people, though, suggest that, no, it's, it's not maybe a physical ailment. The thorn in the flesh might be a relational separation. It, it might, you know... If you've been through like a, a relational separation, people that are close pushed apart or with, within a, a really close relationship that split the agony that can come from that. And some people think that's probably what it was. It was a relational crisis. It was a, a thorn in the flesh. Now, you know, I say it's a red herring because Paul doesn't tell us. And in, some theologians have, have said that's probably deliberate so that you and I, whatever our thorn in the flesh is, we can think Paul, Paul had that as well, you know, <laughs> maybe. But we don't know and we don't need to know. What we do know is the reason for it, which is that when it says thorn, you know, you might imagine, imagine a, little, a little splinter. Uh, the same, same word for thorn was a, a stake, a wooden stake that you would drive into the ground. It's the same word. So what we do need to know is that this wooden stake or this thorn is driven into Paul's flesh to pin him to the ground, to stop him from getting conceited and elevated by the things that he's experienced and seen. So that's red herring number one. Red herring number two, what does this thorn say about prayer? What does it say about prayer as prayer intersects with suffering? Well, what we do know is Paul was not, playing, not praying and saying, it afflicts me and I love it. Bring it on. You know, he, he, Paul is not celebrating this pain he's experiencing. He's saying, please take it away. I, I don't want it. Please take it away. And we're told that he prayed three times. 
Can you think of anybody else praying three times that pain and suffering would be removed? Yeah, Gethsemane, isn't it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told Jesus prays three times, Lord, take this cup from me. And now Paul says, I've prayed three times. He doesn't just mean he said three prayers, three nights in a row, Lord, please. You know, that's not what it was. This is like code or this is like a shorthand way of saying that Paul prayed intensely and consistently and fervently that God would take this thorn away. Now, do you believe, there's a common misperception here, but, but do you believe that God answers every prayer that you and I pray for the removal of suffering with a yes? Do, do you believe that? And some shaking heads. I, I'm sucking you in here because I think he does answer yes every single time. Every single time you come to God and you cry about the experience that you're, you're enduring, the pain you're feeling, the thorn in your flesh, and you say, God, take it away, God says, yes. But the question is the timing. And he, the Bible is absolutely clear. In the end, God will say, yes. Everything will be removed. Everything that causes you pain, whatever the thorn of the flesh that you've identified with this morning, God will remove it in Jesus Christ. He will, promise. But the danger can be when we say, yes, but right now. And there can be some Christians who say that every time that you pray for the removal of a suffering, if that is not removed, that's something that's wrong with your faith. Because God always wants you to be free from the pain in your life that you experience right now. That's not biblical because that's not Paul's experience. Whatever he was enduring, Paul prays fervently to God. The same guy who prayed the demons would leave and they left and prayed for people who were sick and they were healed, prays God, take this away. And God says, not yet. I'm leaving it with you. We should be wary of of expecting or anyone that tells us that every time we pray, God will automatically remove that pain because the Bible says, yes, he will in the end but not always immediately. We should still pray that he will, though. Paul does. But also holding an intention that sometimes God's answer will be not yet. Yes, but not yet. So that's the second uh, red herring. Third one. And this is, there's more in here that I'm, I'm, it's even dangerous to mention this in such a brief period of time. But it's, it does raise the question of Satan's role in our suffering. You notice that? So in, uh, in, Paul, in verse 7, Paul is really clear. He says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, that's by God, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So this is a messenger of Satan. Is this just Paul sort of saying, it's a bad thing and I'm calling it Satan? No, I think it's more than that. And it raises the question, well, what influence does the devil have on your life and mine? Now, you're a Christian, so what influence does the devil have? Um, a long time ago now, 30 years ago, I went with um, Pastor Rob Brown, who's a member of our church now, went to P&G, and we went up into the highlands of P&G, and we were meeting with, and I was, I was brand new, you know, just like, I was just shocked at, you know, at how these men of faith and women of faith were meeting together, and they were, they were talking about, um, they, they discovered a new tribe, that no, they'd never heard about the news about Jesus, ever. 
uh, that in, the, in the highlands that was quite common back then, maybe it still is. And this group of pastors were getting together and they were talking about what happened on the first time that they sent a, a missionary team up there. Uh, what had happened was they'd crossed over the boundary of the, the two tribal areas and they'd entered into the new area where the gospel had never come and almost immediately one of the mission team suffered a heart attack and died. Just crossing over the territory. And I remember these pastors talking about it and their frame of reference was totally different to what I would have expected because they said, yeah, that's, that's the evil one. You know, we, we went in and we didn't take this seriously. We didn't pray. We, we didn't spend enough time fasting, coming before God. And, and, so the, and I'm like, what? So, so this guy died because, because you guys went in there without... It's like, hang on, but the devil can't do that. Like, ah, he was, it was, I was really wrestling with it. And, and often in our world today, we'll say, we'll completely eliminate satanic opposition against any kind of Christian. Anything we, we go like, at least in our church context, we'll often say, no, nah, it can't be. But, but the reality and what we see here as well is, is sometimes it seems very clear that the devil has very real power. Uh, they, these group of Christians, they, they prayed in Papua New Year, they went back, the gospel was preached and it was done successfully. But they viewed that resistance as pure satanic opposition to God's work and word. And word. So how do, we, how do we handle that together? Does Satan have power over a believer in the resurrected Jesus? Yes and no. Yes, uh, Paul here says it's a messenger from Satan to torment me, coming from Satan. So yes, Satan has an influence. Uh, uh, Barnett, one of the commentators, he puts it like this. He says, number one, Satan was the immediate cause of Paul's difficulty. Number two, but because the thorn was given by God, Satan is subject to God. He's not his equal. And three, that's just a profound mystery. <laughs> he says it's a profound mystery. In a mysterious way, God is the ultimate source of the thorn that Paul is experiencing that comes via messenger of Satan. It's one of those questions. It's, it's a red herring because there's more than we can look at here. But it does, when we read that text, we say, how does it work? And then we, of course, could go back to Job and see Job's experience in the book of Job where, where the devil is clearly impacting and influencing his life, bringing, but all the time, God is standing in control. God is guiding, directing, repurposing what the devil means to evil for what is good. So those are red herrings. I know that, but... I'm sure there were questions that were raised by that you would think of as you looked at the text as I did. But now we're done with the context. We're done with the red herrings. Now we're vo- focusing on the main point, and it is wonderful. It's truly wonderful. Verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What's the best version of you? What's the best version of your your ministry? What's the best version of the church? Well, Paul says, 
It's not the strength like the false apostles display. The big crowds and the big moments and the the powerful preaching, look at me, look at what I'm doing. Paul says, my weakness is not an aberration. It's not something that shouldn't happen in my life. He says, my weakness is not something that God's going to remove. He's told me he's not. My ongoing weakness is actually essential, Paul says, for, the, for the, the, the power of Christ to rest on me. Do you understand here? Because this is something that, that you and I really struggle with. Uh, Paul is saying that it's not his strength that draws God's presence and that's the best curated version of him. He says his weakness. When he's weak and he goes on to say in, in verse 9, let me say it again, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You know that word rest on me is, is a word that's loaded with significance. It's, it's will tabernacle with me. Uh, it draws on the Old Testament context of Exodus and others where we, we remember that, that the, the people of Israel are going through the wilderness and, and God rests, he tabernacles, he camps in the middle of his people. Remember that with the tabernacle, God says, I'll be with you and the glory of the Lord shines and Moses' face is, is blazing with it when he comes out and God's with his people. And then in the New Testament, remember in John chapter one, it says, it, says, it talks about the word, Jesus became flesh, And he, what? He tabernacled, same word, with us. Jesus becomes, the word becomes a flesh and he lives, he he camps with his people. Now Paul says, in my weakness, that's when Christ rests on me. That's when he camps with me. That's when he tabernacles with me. The false apostles are saying, yeah, look at the presence of Christ and all of these powerful things I'm doing and amazing things. And Paul says, when I'm weak. That's when Jesus Christ tabernacles with me. He camps with me. Kent Hughes is one of the commentators. I couldn't put it better than what he says. He says this. Life is not as it appears to be. We're led by today's culture to imagine that God pitches his tent with the especially famous and powerful. Those who can speak of ecstasies and miracles who command large crowds as they jet from city to city and enjoy the spotlight of centre stage. But it is not so. Christ pitches his tent with the weak and the unknown, the suffering shut-in, the anonymous pastor and missionary, the godly, quiet servants in the home and the marketplace. God rests there, Paul says, in weakness. We need to change the way we think. He sums it up in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Let's think of some really practical illustrations. I've got a lovely assistant here. This is your moment. Uh, come in, got a whiteboard. I did have a sl- a, some, some diagrams, so I hope that you can... Thank you, guys. Lovely assistants. Thank you both. <laughs> uh, this first slide is by a guy called Morris Dirks and his book, get this right, 
which is forming the leader's soul. And I don't, I don't know if you, you, can, you can see this, um, but you can see this. Actually, I will. I'll look at this one first. This, this is as it relates um, in, in a personal sense, right? So where we want to get to is we want to have our managed life. And for most of us, that's, I want to be strong. I don't want to have any pain. I, I just want to be living my best life now. I want to be so strong. And this is the managed where we want to be. But then inevitably, you and I discover that that's not how it always works. We get a thorn in the flesh. Something doesn't work out the way we thought it is. And then we end up in this, what, what he calls the wounded life. And, and the wounded life is where we're wrestling with that brokenness, with that weakness. And we've got two options, really, he says. One of them is we just want to get strong again. So, you know, it's like when I broke my leg last year, it's like it's broken, it's hurt, I'm in the wounded physical thing, I want my leg to get right again straight away so I can do the things I want to do. And that's a perfectly natural experience. I'm thankful God, God did that. But sometimes, spiritually, that's not how it works. It didn't work for Paul. He's left here in the wounded life and he says, I've prayed that God would take me back here, but he's not. He's leaving it here. And then uh, Morris Dirk says, so, so if we're always trying to get back what we spiritually, then what we do is we miss two things. We miss, number one, the fact that Paul's saying, God works in my weakness. That's when the power of God rests on me. It's not like, it's not like you know, um, my weakness plus his strength equals my strength, right? The equation. My weakness, his strength equals my strength. That's not how it works. My weakness, his strength equals his strength. It's about God's power. And so if we're always trying to get back to our, our we, we, we miss it. And he says we need, to, we need to dwell in this moment in the forming life. The, the opportunity to be formed by Christ. Like Paul's doing, saying, I prayed that he would take it away. He hasn't, but his grace is sufficient for me. He's doing something in me. His, his power is resting on me in a way that it can't be when I'm up here in my managed life. So ministry-wise, this is how it can look like. Morris Dirks again, he says, this is how it looks like in ministry. And I love this bit. I don't know if you can see here, but there's a heroic journey of ministry. Uh, anyone been on that? I have, you know, you, you start off ministry and it's a heroic journey. It's like, a, it's something, you know, they could write the Aeneid or the Odyssey about your, your great heroic journey in ministry. And then you hit what he calls crisis of limitations. Um, and everybody hits it, right? In other words, you discover, I'm totally inadequate. I'm weak. I make mistakes. I am so weak. And then and he talks about here, everyone in their ministry experiences this, and you've got three, three options, and each of them you're a fool. It just depends what kind of fool you're going to be. And a lot of people are the embittered fool, you know, or, the, or the old fool, rather, pointing up and going, I'm just going to spend my life getting back to my glory. I'm going to get back on this heroic journey. I'm going to get strong again, and I'm going to, I'm going to work harder and, and sleep less and pray more, and I'm going to get back to my strong self again. And he says, that's an old fool. It's not what you do. Then he talks about the other one is the embittered fool. And you go, I know I'm not getting back to that. The heroic journey's over and I'm just going to be angry and bitter. And I think this shouldn't be happening to me. It's not happening to her. 
Well, maybe, how come their ministry doesn't experience this? Look at, the, look at the church down the road. That's huge. They don't have any problems. You know, and you become embittered. But then he says, where you need to be is where the wounds become sacred, where you become the holy fool. You're recognizing that Christ has me here for a reason. And yes, I want to be his servant, but I know, as Paul says, that it's not in my strength that Christ gets the glory, it's in my weakness. It's in my brokenness. It's in those areas where I wish it wasn't the case, but here I am. I don't know about you, but I find that freeing. It's wonderful to know that, that Christ works in our weakness, and I'll tell you why. Because he knows what he's about. Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. I don't know if you've heard this, but let me read it to you. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mould a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, watch his methods. You watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends, but he never breaks. When he's good, he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses. And which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. So what's the best vision of you? The best version of you? If your current experience right now is not up here, not in the the heroic journey or the managed life, God's got you exactly where he wants you. God's working in your weakness to display his strength. Your, your weakness is what sometimes been called the valley of vision, where you and your weakness are in the valley, and that's when the stars shine bright. That's when God molds and works. God doesn't need your human strength, but he will use your weakness, that the power of Christ may rest on you, that you would find, as Paul found, that his grace is sufficient for you. Easy to hear, so hard to grasp, isn't it? So hard when we're suffering and we're hurting, when the thorn in our flesh is so painful. So hard to hear that, why isn't my father going to take it away from me straight away? Because your father loves you. He knows what he's about. In your weakness, he's strong. Like Paul then, we can glory in that weakness. Glory in the times when we feel we fall short because that's where Christ rests on us in the fullness of his power. God knows what he's about. I'm going to pray for us and then I think think we'll say farewell to our uh, friends in Brisbane and then here in Geelong we're going to share communion together. But let's pray. Father, um, we need your help with this. 
The world around us tells us that we've got to be strong, that Christians that are are kicking goals for you are the ones that are are strong and, and doing amazing things and seem to be so without weakness. But Lord, our experience is so often one of weakness, enduring weakness. But Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth that that Paul experienced, your greatest servant, one of your greatest servants in, in all of human history, who says that it's in his weakness that you are strong. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd encourage us, help us, we pray, to to not always be trying to get back to our strengths, but to listen to your voice and to bend the knees of our hearts before you and to lift up our hands and embrace you and to learn from you. Oh, Lord, we pray you'd change us as individuals, as churches. Help us, Lord, to glory in our weakness that Christ's strength may be displayed in and through us. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.